Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Barnflies, a podcast about making sure your retirement accounts are properly set up before you disown your kids. This week, we're discussing another of Shakespeare's bad dads, King Lear. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 29, Lear and Loathing. Now, our joy, although our last and least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Will, would you please give us a plot summary of this uh, legendary Shakespearean tragedy? Typically, I would say happily, James, but this one is just purest tragedy. So uh, I will do my best in this tortuous and sad plot. In another episode, in the annals of great parenting and good government in Shakespeare, the elderly King Lear of Britain has decided to retire early from the throne. The play opens with the most uncomfortable family meeting of all time, when Lear tells his three daughters that he has decided to divide the kingdom according to how lavishly they profess to love him. His eldest daughter, Goneril, joined by her husband Albany, tells Lear that she loves him more than eyesight, space, and liberty. His second daughter, Regan, joined by her husband, Cornwall, is not to be outdone, but says that in fact she hates everything in the world apart from her father. But Cordelia, Lear's youngest and favorite daughter, is unwilling to play the game and simply says that she loves Lear according to her bond, nor more nor less. A stunned Lear tries to draw out a greater profession of love from Cordelia, who refuses to engage in flattery. In a rage, Lear disinherits her and tells her suitor, the King of France, that he will get no dowry from him. Lear's loyal aide, Kent, tries to intervene, protesting his lord's madness, only for Lear to exile him on the spot. He divides Cordelia's third of Britain between Goneril and Regan and tells them that they'll have to host him and 100 of his knights from time to time in their castles. But Goneril and Regan are hardly what they seem. As Lear heads off, they both confide in each other, that they said what they needed to say to get their inheritance and think very little of their father. Lear's courtier, Gloucester, watches the proceedings with dismay and bewilderment from the sidelines with his sons, Edgar and Edmund, not knowing their trouble brews in his own house. Edmund, a bastard, wants to get rid of his brother so he can inherit his father's lands and shows his father a forged letter that purportedly proves Edgar is plotting to seize power. While Lear and his knights are partying at Goneril and Albany's court, Kent presents himself as a servant in disguise and wins Lear's trust by fighting with Goneril's rude majordomo Oswald. This, along with the excessive bar tab, causes an argument between Lear and Goneril which reveals Goneril's lack of respect for her father. Lear then takes off for Regan's with Kent, his knights, and his fool, who mockingly predicts that he'll get a similar reception from his middle daughter, who he plans to connect with at Gloucester's home. While Gloucester awaits the arrival of Regan, Cornwall, Lear, and Lear's retinue at his castle, Edmund feigns an attack by Edgar, leading Gloucester to declare Edgar an outlaw. Edgar flees into the wilderness, disguising himself as a madman named Tom O'Bedlam. The situation for Lear takes a turn for the worse 
when Kent fights Goneril's majordomo Oswald again at Gloucester's home and gets sent to the stocks, though he promptly falls asleep in them, raising the question as to whether the stocks are actually an effective form of punishment. His protests receive a stony hearing, while Regan and Goneril tell Lear that they will no longer pay to host his men in their homes. Lear flies into a rage against his daughters, accompanied by a totally coincidental wild thunderstorm. He heads out into the storm with Kent and the Fool, encountering a disguised Edgar along the way, eventually taking shelter with him in a hovel. The plot then takes a dark turn. A disturbed Gloucester has written to Cordelia and the King of France, asking them to restore order and justice in the realm and Lear to the throne. Cordelia and the French forces have already arrived in Britain, ready for war. Edmund sells his own father out to Cornwall, Regan, and Goneril. Regan and Cornwall proceed to torture Gloucester, putting out both of his eyes. A servant, loyal to Gloucester, rushes to Cornwall and fatally stabs him, leading Regan to kill the servant herself with a sword. She dumps Gloucester to wander the wilderness as well, telling him that Edmund betrayed him. Edgar comes upon his blind father, who doesn't recognize his voice. A remorseful Gloucester begs Edgar, who he takes to be just a madman wandering in the fields, to take him to Dover so he can kill himself by jumping off the famous white cliffs. In a weird instance of experimental psychotherapy gone wrong, Edgar agrees to do so, but tricks him into jumping in a flat area, revealing to Gloucester that he has survived a quote-unquote miraculous fall and that his good son still lives. Meanwhile, Lear and Kent link up with the French army led by Cordelia. But rather than achieving reconciliation, Lear rants and raves against the disorder in the world and is so embarrassed and shocked by his own foolishness that he runs off into the wilderness once more, though Kent and Cordelia eventually find him and talk him down. Awaiting the battle with the French, Goneril and Regan have turned on each other, Goneril decides that Edmund is more attractive than her husband Albany, Albany having developed a conscience and being utterly disgusted by his wife and sister-in-law. But she fears that the widowed Regan will try to wed Edmund before she can, and in fairness, Edmund is stringing both of them along. An unwitting Albany decides to join forces with Regan to fight the French invaders nonetheless. Meanwhile, one of Regan's servants stumbles upon Gloucester and tries to kill him, only to be thwarted by Edgar, who discovers a letter in the servant's pocket from Goneril to Edmund, which reveals that she plans to have Edmund kill Albany. In fact, as Edmund tells the audience, he plans to kill Albany, Lear, and Cordelia, and to seize power for himself. Amid all of this conspiracy and confusing turnabout, the British forces win the battle against the French, but Albany exposes Edmund's plots in the process, which included sending a henchman to kill a captured Cordelia and Lear. Regan, poisoned by Goneril, dies on stage while Edmund challenges Albany to a duel. Out of nowhere, a masked knight arrives to challenge Edmund in Albany's stead and wounds Edmund mortally, unveiling himself at the last minute as Edgar, a revelation that so shocks Gloucester that he dies off stage of joy. Albany confronts Goneril for her treachery, and she runs off to commit suicide offstage. On his deathbed, a repentant Edmund tries to save Lear and Cordelia by confessing to Albany and asking him to send messengers to stop his assassin. But he is wise too late. A heartbroken Lear steps onto the stage, cradling Cordelia's body. The loyal Kent reveals himself to his master, and Albany begs him to restore order to the realm. 
but an exhausted Lear begs off and dies from grief. Albany then turns to Kent and Edgar, asking them to rule Britain together instead. But Kent refuses, stating that he must follow his master on a journey, while Edgar, or Albany, depending on which edition of the play you're reading, ascends to the throne. End scene. Oof, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a you, high that's body a, count. <laughs> that is a tough, uh, both a circuitous plot to try to summarize pithily, and also a lot of characters and just a tough story overall. So uh, well done, and, and thank you for an, another, Will, another fantastic plot summary by you. What can I say? I, I'm, I'm getting slightly better, if not entirely clearer, at explaining all of the plots within plots and assassinations. Uh, That's and right. Family discord. So speaking of family discord, Will, the place I want to start here is with the incredibly famous first scene, you know, the dividing of the country between the three sisters, or in the end, the two sisters. And the reason I want to talk about this is I I feel like our reading of the play, or the conventional reading of the play, is that Goneril and Regan are, you know, these horrible people, and they're opportunistic and cynical in playing along with Lear's requests. Whereas Cordelia is a monument of virtue and steadfastness and whatever in refusing to play along. But when I was reading this scene, I was like, I don't understand. Like, what does it actually cost Cordelia to play along in this moment when, like, Lear's stepping down? It reads to me almost like an awkward wedding or... The wedding of someone that like maybe you don't really like that much but you know it's like some family member that that you're not close with or something but you play along because you don't want to create an upset and like and it costs you nothing to do that so i think my basic question here is are we really convinced that cordelia is somehow more virtuous in this scene i guess in this specific context by her like unwillingness to play along with Lear's essentially insecurity. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, so I actually, I, I do think that she is more virtuous and it's borne out by the plot than Goneril and Regan. But I do think that you're raising an interesting point here. And actually you raised the, the wedding analogy. I actually think that this is maybe akin to the, the person that wants to give the brutal eulogy when somebody is dead, right? And uh, it's a family member Mm -hmm. that nobody liked or somebody that did something very, very wrong. And there's kind of a time and place for for that type of reckoning. But it might not be, you know, the best to settle scores or deliver brutal, direct truth in the moment. Not every situation calls for that. Sometimes truth to power can be self-indulgent. In this case, I have a little bit of sympathy for her, right? Because... And I have sympathy actually also for Goneril and Regan when you see the way Lear kind of capriciously comes in and forces them to make these extravagant professions for their inheritance. Um, You almost get the sense that Lear, he's not been a great father to them. Let's put it that way. And he's also, I would say, lacks self-awareness. Yes. Oh, certainly. I mean, he doesn't know himself. In fact, there's a great line where Regan comments... "'Tis the infirmity of his age, yet he hath 
ever but slenderly known himself after Goneril mm-hmm. basically is saying, oh, it's senility, and Regan is actually saying, well, really, is it Lear, though? <laughs> Lear is not really, he's never really had all of his marbles, so there's an interesting tension there. But I guess if you're in this situation with somebody who's kind of emotionally manipulative and abusive in the way that Lear is, at least in this scene, I can not really fault Goneril and Regan for acquiescing and going along with the conceit to get what they believe is their due nor frankly can i really fault cordelia for throwing it back in lear's face and saying this is ridiculous i've had enough i'm not really going to play along with this to indulge your vanity so i I guess that's my reaction which is a little bit complex i i see the case for this being a little bit self-indulgent mm-hmm. but i also have some sympathy with it because this is sort of like the final moment of king lear in power in power kind of. and he's being totally unreasonable to the point where his own servants and courtiers are looking on with horror at this whole scene yeah so i i think the scene is embarrassing but so the, the way i'm coming at it will or the way that i'm thinking about it is Cordelia's reaction and our valorization of Cordelia for behaving in this way would make a lot of sense in the context of Lear still being in power, right? And I think there's no question that being surrounded by flatterers and listening to obsequious flatterers and hangers-on and sycophants is not a good look in people in power and is, you know, those people need to hear the Kents of the world and the Mm -hmm. Cordelia's of the world saying like, no, this is a bad idea or you shouldn't do that or, you know, or whatever. You know, I think in the context where it's someone in power, if you have like the Gonerals and the Regans playing along, not wanting to lose their positions and therefore just saying what they know the person wants to hear, that can lead to very negative, Mm -hmm. to actually very negative outcomes. In this context, it it just reads like a ceremony that you have to like grit and bear it, get through it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then he's going to retire, you know, and you know he's stepping down. And yes, you're right. There's a time and a place. I'm just not sure why this is the time and the place. (laughs) Yes, I, I can definitely sympathize with that point of view. I mean, I think there's the sort of formal nature of this, which is there's a political decision that's being made, right, about the division of the kingdom. And in that sense, it militates against going sort of full bore, especially when you consider the consequences. I mean, like a lot of this situation and the horrible bloodbath that follows comes directly from Lear's decision to leave his kingdom without a single ruler and to divide it between his daughters. But setting that aside for a moment, you can look at it as a political decision and it's just a ceremonial thing that one must do to avoid great danger and risk and to also just inherit the thing that you need to inherit. But by the same token as a family matter, you can sympathize with the direct and honest response. The problem is I think that this is more a political act and a ceremonial act, as you put it, than a true family sort of confrontation you know we're not reading sort of a classic family drama you know there's this is a this is also a a commentary on politics and the kingdom and i think that's actually um one of the interesting things here is that shakespeare's weaving the two things together the politics 
and the family discord and strife across, you know, all of the households yeah. that are portrayed here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that the, the smarter case, clearly, for Cordelia, it would be to just say what she needs to say and get on with her life, recognizing that, you know, this is a, an unstable individual who can't be relied upon, and sort of moving on and just trying to be more honest in the way that she deals with people. And I think this is a trope that we sometimes see with characters in Shakespeare who are so honest and uh, direct that it, mm-hmm. it obviously brings about like their downfall in a way. But whether you see it as a courageous act of almost martyrdom or you see it as hopelessly self-indulgent is, I think, a little bit left in the eye of the beholder. Though in this case, I think you're meant to admire her more than her sisters, certainly. Yeah, well, to that point, Will, this play does seem to evince a lot of, like, both admiration for honesty and truth, but also displays, I think, a real ambivalence about the real-world consequences of mm-hmm. of that. I mean, you have Lear who says, let pride, which she calls plainness, marry her. And I think, of course, in that context, that's like Lear's bitterness speaking more than necessarily like a, a trenchant critique of yeah. like, quote-unquote, plain speech. You also see Cornwall at some point who talks about plain speech as a almost as like a rhetorical strategy, which I don't know if we want to like get into that, but I thought that was like an interesting Mm -hmm. observation. But then also at the end of the play, and I think we're going to come back to this when we talk a little bit more about Lear in depth, right? Lear does come to some sense of recognition and like sees truth more clearly, but it's very painful. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's exactly ambivalence, but it's like there's a cost here to truth and to speaking candidly. I mean, you know, Will, uh, on this, very directly on this theme, I was just, I was just looking at some of the, the quotes I, I pulled f- from this, and there's this great Gloucester quote where he's talking about exactly these costs, and he says, how stiff is my vile sense that I stand up and have ingenious feeling of my huge sorrows. Better I were distract, so should my thoughts be severed from my griefs and woes by wrong imaginations, lose the knowledge of themselves. There's kind of a feeling here that to be ignorant and to not feel pain would in some sense be better than knowing the truth and experiencing, you know, the negative consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I know, I, I don't know if I have a more profound point than that. It's just something I've, I'm thinking about as we're talking about this. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that Lear is a classic case of a character, the tragic sort of archetype that you keep seeing in so many works of literature. He's wise too late, right? It's only after he goes through this tremendous journey where the scales fall from his eyes that he ends up realizing that the truth is a pretty bitter pill for him to swallow. And similarly, it's not as if Cordelia's honesty is really the cause of her um, downfall. I mean, who's to say that Goneril and Regan wouldn't have tried to kill her in some other way or what have you, but she doesn't get what she deserves in the sense of of her behavior being generally virtuous and Mm -hmm. admirable in some sense, right? So yeah, there's something definitely um, interesting there. You could sort of counterpoise, though, the characters of Albany, Edgar, and Kent to some degree, who are both practical men who nonetheless try to deal with one another relatively honestly, apart from the brief and very weird episode where Edgar deceives his father into trying to kill himself, but not really, which is which is a pretty strange moment in the play. That was um, very weird. 
Yeah, yeah very, very weird. And not really resolved uh, satisfactorily in the text of the play at all. It's not really clear what he was going for there, but interesting nonetheless. Anyway, I guess uh, the point is I just single out those characters because they show that there are ways to be honorable, more or less, that don't end up either throwing yourself on a pyre or kind of being a fool who's educated very bitterly in the right. last act of the play. I mean, and, you know, the, the sort of ultimate counterpoint to this is Edmund, right? Who is mm. Iago-like in his commitment to deceit. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, I I just, I, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange incident. And I, you know, the scene is, is so famous. And I, I just wasn't totally sure that our popular that the the popular representation of the scene necessarily matches up with what seems to be going on in the play of course to move into our second topic here will uh there are some profoundly negative political consequences of lear's decision here and i think it has a couple of different valences right it's not there's the lear rejection of cordelia but i think more profoundly there's lear's just decision to step back without fully stepping back. And, you know, mm. I think we could probably think of a couple examples in history or perhaps also in contemporary, in the contemporary world of things like this. But I just wanted to talk through some of the implications of Lear's behavior here because, you know, we have seen other succession dramas, right, in Shakespeare. And I think what this most resembles of the other plays, I think is the Henry VI triad. This is like slightly different because in the Henry VI plays, Henry is present, but withdrawn. Mm -hmm. But Henry is in theory the king and in theory holds all the power. Whereas here, what's happening is Lear is stepping away and like retiring. So it's like, it's not directly analogous, but what is analogous is this like weak center. You know, because yes. Henry may, in theory, Henry VI may, in theory, hold all the cards and be powerful, but he's not interested in ruling. And like, and that sort of creates a situation where all these different scheming nobles can come in and start messing things up. Whereas Lear is stepping down, like, he wants to maintain his dignity and his, like, titles and whatever, but basically he wants to party with his bros, his hundred oh, right, bros. right, right. Um, so I, I don't know. Do you, what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, so do you have any thoughts about the succession stuff? Sure. I think you identified uh, a really a really good point there, which is that it's about a weak center. You know, you can you can find multiple examples of this. I mean, often, typically, I think it usually tends to go the other way. Like somebody wants to hold on to power too long, and then there's no room for an orderly succession, or you sort of enervate and weaken potential heirs that you could have cultivated. And uh, that can lead to all sorts of bad consequences as well. But I think nonetheless, it's sort of a similar problem. I mean, I you know, think of lots of lots of examples that fit into into this category in different kind of manifestations. I think, um, you know, here specifically, right, Lear isn't terribly interested in ruling anymore. So on the one hand, he's interested in stepping away and just kind of living his life. Uh, and enjoying himself. And you get the sense that he didn't really grow up in the final analysis, which is, I think, the source of Goneril and Regan's back and forth that I quoted earlier, is that, yeah, he's old and 
kind of elderly, possibly infirm in various ways, but he, he didn't really ever achieve much wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, he's kind of childish, and you can see that in the way his rages manifest themselves. But, you know, you don't get the sense he's terribly interested in the details of ruling. That's kind of why he's stepping away. And I think you can see a couple examples uh, in contemporary political life of this. I think one that jumps to mind of somebody who formally held power but didn't really demonstrate all that much interest in exercising it towards the very end of his time is probably uh, Churchill, who had Antony Eden waiting in the wings, who had expected to become prime minister for years and years and had served Churchill quite honorably. When Churchill finally stepped down and uh, Eden stepped up, Eden was well past his prime. He had health problems. He made a terrible decision in the Suez crisis to sort of embark on this military adventure that backfired disastrously and just had a, a very bad time of it. And you realize that had Churchill actually been maybe thinking a little bit more broadly and had been less divested from the political succession question, you know, things might have turned out differently. And in this sense, right, Lear is just thinking, oh, I've got three daughters. I can divide the kingdom into thirds. I don't really have to think about this all that much. So it's kind of baffling, actually, right? It's He wants to be taken care of. He doesn't really want any responsibility. Yet he's making a decision that's going to almost inherently inspire faction and dissent and dissatisfaction in the people that come after him. You mean just by virtue of dividing the country in three or what ends up being yes. two rather than in anointing a single... Yes, I think that that's right. I mean, of course you can end up right, and we've definitely read other stories where brothers and sisters, you know, where one gets chosen and the others do not, that have gone the other way and have ended up quite badly. But I think in this case, you're almost um, prompting that kind of fight, especially, interestingly enough, with the husbands thrown into the equation as well. There are just a lot more actors in the mix And actually, this is something I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that that's why Edmund rises to the fore here and and becomes such a powerful character? Because he's sort of moving between these different courts, even though he doesn't really have a full place in any of them. And that's another thing that I kind of wondered about, is, is would that really have existed in the same way if there had just been a single successor? I mean, maybe, maybe not, but I wanted to get you... Well, it that. all depends on the successor to some degree, right? But I think, you know, Edmund strongly reminds me of the Somersets and the Winchesters and the, mm. you know, whatever, the, the Richards of York from the Henry VI plays in being a although Edmund is I guess Edmund's not the same in that those are all already powerful people Mm -hmm. who are enabled to pursue their own interests more aggressively and nakedly by virtue of the weak center whereas Edmund is I mean Edmund's a bastard right he's not someone who necessarily should or would have power like that, but he's enabled by the circumstance that Lear creates to advance himself. Yeah. And, of course, he does that to some... Like, there's there's the trickery of Gloucester. I mean, it's not all about Lear. He's doing a lot of other stuff. Edmund, I mean, is doing a lot of other mm. stuff, too. But, I yes, I do feel like Edmund is enabled by the situation. Like, the situation enables his rise. Yeah, yeah. That... Being said, 
So you're pointing to the kingdom being divided in two or divided in three. Uh, sorry, I'm like, I, I keep wanting to say three and then two because both are present regardless. You're sort of saying that it's the division of the kingdom that's creating these problems. I am wondering, though, if it's maybe more the half-measureness of it, right? Where you have Lear who's in but also out, you know? And he's sort of hovering between the different yeah, uh, so courts. It's, right, it's not like Pope Benedict, right, to use a, a contemporary example, where, like, Pope Benedict abdicated or retired or whatever and like went to live in a hut in the back of the vatican now admittedly will i don't know that much about contemporary church politics but like he that's someone who's like really removed himself from that milieu versus i think of someone like teddy roosevelt might be more in the the lear situation the, the post-presidency teddy roosevelt who was like stepped away and let taft sort of take over and taft was his chosen successor and then was like actually Taft's not doing stuff the way I would want him to, so I'm going to, like, come back and I'm going to run for office and just basically destroy the chances for the Republican Party in 1912. So uh, to me, I I think it seems to be more about Lear's continued presence despite being no longer in power, but maintaining enough of a presence that he's a potential locus of power. I, I don't know. I don't actually know how, if that plays out here, but that that's sort of my gut. Yeah. Uh, wh- I, what do you think? I guess I would react in the following ways. I mean, on the one hand, in contrast to, say, Teddy Roosevelt or Churchill or some of these other examples that we've been talking about, Lear isn't terribly interested in injecting himself into the process of governing any of the realms. He just wants places where the bar tab is open mm-hmm. for him and his retinue, right? And he shows up with these hundred knights. Now, I would also say, you know, showing up with a hundred knights and expecting to be fed and housed and entertained. I mean, there's a little bit of an interesting question there of what those knights are for uh, that's never really addressed in the play. But you don't see Lear intent on governing. In fact, you almost get the sense he wants to shed responsibility rather than formally abdicate but continue to play a role behind the scenes or sort of micromanage from the sidelines. And he's no Brian Cox in succession, you know, where Mm -hmm. he is going to formally step back but then thrusts himself back into the corridors of power in a, in a, a way where he's actually taking positions. But he does have this retinue that is a armed force of belligerent you know, knights following him around. And I think maybe more than anything else... Let me, let so- me just throw out in here, uh, Will, on that point, right? Regan says, How in one house should many people under two commands hold amity? Tis hard, almost impossible, right? Mm. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any question that what Lear is doing is creating a somewhat dangerous and ambiguous situation. Yes. Well, yeah, maybe I there's a question, but I think that that's, that idea is present, certainly, that, that yeah. maybe... Even without formally opposing anything that Goneril and Regan and their husbands are doing, and even by not formally wading into policy, he is sort of setting himself up as... I mean, he still actually is called king, right? People still refer to him that way. That's actually one of the terms of his retirement. He still gets sort of treated with all of the honors that accompany that. So even with that sort of formal authority, even if he's not actually taking stances 
on the issues, even if he's not wading into the debates of the realm, he's still exerting just in almost his presence, but absence in some way. He's he's there and he confuses people. And this is always why, right, when you um, step down as a leader, whether it's a CEO or the president, not just... Um, the decorous thing to do, but actually the right thing to do for the success of your of the person that's following you in power is to actually take a step back for a bit, to not be public and present, to not be constantly injecting yourself in, or just looming as a as a media celebrity of sorts, right? Because it confuses people. People don't know how to act. And I think that's very fair. I mean, I also think there's a wonderful speech by Gloucester about how the moral order of the universe has been upset, partially because of the way Lear treated Cordelia and his children. And also, one could argue, kings don't really retire, right? <laughs> like that, you know, the king shouldn't be retiring in the universe. And that's the speech where Gloucester says, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. It's my favorite speech in the play. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, and, and perhaps we'll just find it and play the whole thing. These late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Love cools, friendships fall off, brothers divide. In cities, mutinies, in countries, discord, in palaces, treason, and the bond cracked twixt son and father. This villain of mine comes under the prediction there's son against father. The king falls from bias of nature. There's father against child. We have seen the best of our time. Machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. Find out this villain, Edmund. It shall lose thee nothing. Do it carefully. And the noble and true-hearted Kent banished. His offense? Honesty. It is strange. But in a sense, right, Lear's behavior, both in the political universe and in the familial universe, has upset the moral order of Britain. And while you can't say it's directly responsible for everything that follows, because you get all these indicators that... Goneril and Regan aren't really great people, and then obviously the Edmund situation may have taken off with or without all of this, but it certainly hasn't helped. And in fact, it's probably given people like Edmund greater opportunities to yes, be a malevolent sure. presence. Sure. It certainly is not a it's not a good thing. And I think all of that points to the the unnaturalness of Lear's decision-making. And it's it's another interesting question that we should talk about, which is, what do we attribute Lear's behavior to, and how should people play Lear? Because I think there's a lot of ambiguity and color and texture to this character, who um, is really perhaps Shakespeare's most famous older character, or character for older actors to take on. Well... I mean, I, I let me just start by saying the way I think the character should be played before we talk about some of the other interpretations. And I remember we had this interesting conversation also about Richard II, Will, right, about the different ways that you can interpret what that character was doing and how you could portray him. 
I think there are a few different possibilities with Lear, but to me, the one that seems like it makes the most sense, both in terms of the way the character is presented on the page, but also in terms of kind of the dramatic arc of the character, is, you know, is a more narcissistic, Mm self-absorbed type of portrayal, right? Because I think... You know, to that point we were talking about earlier, right? The he, he is he has never well known himself or whatever the Goneril line is. It seems like a lot of what's what we see from Lear is this lack of self awareness, this sort of childish tantrum throwing, and you know, and, and his lack of basically lack of being in touch with himself for, for lack of and his like and his focus on what he needs to hear, and really I think his insecurity are what cause him to make these decisions and act in these rash ways that have very negative consequences, right? I mean, I I think basically what happens with Cordelia is it's not that Lear is malicious, exactly. It's that he's hurt, Mm. you know, and and he's hurt because he's insecure and he's obviously the demand that he's making is really unreasonable, or not unreasonable, it's very unseemly, and he's being driven to act by his insecurity rather than by his rationality, right? And ultimately... Through this process, this very, very painful process, he comes to some level of self-awareness. Can we just play this, uh, this speech at the end, Will? We are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. Myself could else outfrown false fortune's frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? No, 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 no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in a cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. And so we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of the great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Take them away! Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Have I caught thee? He that parts us shall bring a brand from heaven and fire us hence like foxes. Wipe thine eyes. The good years shall devour them, flesh and fell. They shall make us weep. We'll see them starved first. This very beautiful and very sad speech, basically where you see that he's come to realize the error of his ways in some way, but he's only done it, he's only achieved that through this great pain. So I think for that to have the maximum impact and for that poignant final scene with him and Cordelia and then back again when he brings Cordelia's body on stage, for that really to work, or for it to work to its maximum effect, I think you have to start him from this place of great narcissism. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my take. What do you think? So I think he can be played in a, in a lot of different ways. I think I see him as insecure and rather capricious in a way that I mean, I I think you can play in multiple ways. The way that would resonate the most with me is the suggestion that Lear is not just sort of pompous in a way, because you can definitely declaim his lines in that, but is somebody that's pretty volatile and Mm -hmm. uh, and capricious and lives by his whims. You know, is somebody that 
leaves his children afraid of him in a way. And that the scene that you see at the very beginning of him, you know, asking for these professions of love, that it's actually part of a pattern of his behavior that you don't necessarily see all of it, but this is the evidence of the presence that he has in their lives. And so in a sense, he's capricious, he's unpredictable. He's somebody that, you know, lends himself to not just sort of the insecurity of old age, Mm -hmm. but there's something kind of wrong with him in a more profound way uh, with how he slips into these rages. So, you know, one interpretation that I thought was pretty good is actually a recent performance by Anthony Hopkins, where he plays him very much in that style. Mm-hmm. Oh, now, where's that mongrel? He says, my lord, your daughter is not well. Oh, I came not the slave back to me when I called him. Sir, he answered me in the roundest manner. He would not. He would not. <laughs> <laughs> Go and tell my daughter I would speak with her. Go, you call her my fool. Sir? <laughs> oh, you, sir, you. Come here hither, sir. Who am I, sir? My lady's father. My lady's father. My lord's navy, horse and dog, your slave, your cur. I'm none of these, my lord. I beseech your pardon. But he looks at me, you rascal. I'll not be struck, uh, my lord. No drift, neither, you big football player. I thank thee, fellow, thou servest me, and I love thee. But there are other interpretations as well, and, and I think that's kind of the beauty of this character, is he could evolve and have a different texture and character depending on the actor in question because he could also just be an old man who's out to lunch yeah i mean i guess my feeling about that you know there's there's the sort of senile presentation of him and that does fit with the madness that he sort of descends into i feel like the senile presentation maybe undercuts some of the power of the transformation Mm -hmm. you know i i I guess for me, it's like if he's senile, then there's kind of an excuse for his behavior. Right. And to me, for it to really work best, I don't think you want to have an excuse. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Some of his breakdowns are a little bit more whimsical, and some of them are rather terrifying in their unbridled rage. And I think you can't really make it just about a... (laughs) a sort of obtuse and senile old man if you want the enraged parts to actually resonate and be truly terrifying like yeah. the storm that engulfs the heath that he's standing on. So I think that there's there's something about trying to thread that needle where you can have it. Some of his uh, speeches are... You know, actually, you know, this reminds me a little bit of Titus and Titus's madness in a sense. Mm-hmm where there's aspects of Titus's breakdown in Titus Andronicus where he clearly just comes across as a little bit crazy in a almost silly, jokey kind of way when he's trying to kill the fly and so forth with his sons. And then there's also the fact that Titus is a truly terrifying, vicious, bent-on-vengeance, almost sociopathic character as well. Yeah. And trying to find, I'm not saying that Lear is a sociopath, but trying to find space for somebody to toggle between those two modes of acting is actually a real challenge, I think, if you want all of the speeches to really land with the force and power that they can potentially have. Because I think his madness does evolve, like it changes over the course of the play, and he does get talked down eventually, 
by Cordelia and Kent when he wanders off the second time. Yeah. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different directions you could take this. I mean, you could also just portray him as somebody who recognizes that he's dying and wants to enjoy the time he has left to a certain degree. And like he just literally wants to unburden himself mm-hmm. and wants to be given the equivalent of a gold watch and sent into retirement by displays of filial piety yeah. um, at his retirement party. You know, <laughs> so there's there's that too, certainly. Do you think that those different readings will change our sense of the meaning of the play? I, this is the thing I was thinking about it because I, I do think it does in Richard II. Yeah. I think if you view Richard as just like a straight up sociopath, then that gives the play a very different coloring from the like out of touch. Philosopher uh, King yeah. type situation. Yeah. 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 You know, th- those are very, I think those result in a very different feel to, or, or very different reactions to the usurpation of Bolingbroke and and how you react to the death of Richard and how you view his overall arc and his eventually perhaps gaining mm. some wisdom. Do you think that that's true here as well? I think so, because if you cast somebody as Lear who doesn't realize that he's a fundamentally immature character that lacks wisdom, not just by being headstrong and angry, but by not knowing himself and by having this desire to escape responsibility and sort of shed it off so he can just enjoy himself in his you know remaining years. I don't know, there has to be an aspect of immaturity to a presentation of Lear. And yeah, that could be emotional maturity given to outbursts and anger, but I also think it has to do with not really understanding the weight of his position and dispensing with it very easily. So I do think you have to find the right type of person. I think it can be uh, like Lear, a Lear that's a bit too stentorian and is playing it a little too straight, I don't think is going to quite work. I think you have to show sort of the emotional range and insecurity and um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, kind of immature, like the the immaturity. I think that's the word. I think that you need that to be there for the character to come full circle. Yeah, I, I think I basically uh, agree with that. And I, and I think that immaturity probably rests in all of these different interpretations that we've talked about, except for maybe the senility interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the one where I'm like, I just don't see that like really working in the same way because it... Obviously, the play is about age and aging. Mm-hmm. But I think that that way of looking at it in terms of the aging and like if it's about the idea that he has returned to a childlike way of engaging with the world because of his age, I think that undercuts the, you know, the idea, which I think I would say to me is present in the play that really this is who he's always been. Yes, yes. But I think, yeah, if it's if he's like if he's pompous and vainglorious versus being capricious and abusive, right? Both of those are still activated by the underlying insecurity, right? And, and I think the insecurity is maybe the essential part of his character yeah, or the immaturity. Uh, I mean, I'm saying insecurity, you're saying immaturity, but I, I, think I view them as both. kind of the same thing. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I think um, the point about the senility kind of robbing, if it's just due to the fact that the old man's lost his marbles, uh, that sort of robs any real meaning behind yeah. the text and the the arc journey that he goes on. Yeah. 
Well, I think that we've we've covered a lot of frontage here. I guess my question to you is, how do we stack this one? This where is we, one of where the, we rank the big it? four. Yeah, this is one of the big four in terms of the canonical great tragedies. And so I'm curious where it landed for you and if you think it, it deserves that space. You know what, Will? I, I have to say, this one just didn't do it for me. Mm. And I feel bad saying that because I know that this is considered, as you said, one of the big ones. It's one of the four big tragedies. It is probably the great role for an older actor in English. And I do think perhaps there's an element to it, or, or at least I, I feel like I've been told or heard <laughs> from people that it's it's a role that, or it's a play that achieves more power as you age and like sort of relate to that aspect of it more strongly. But basically I would say, I think there's real pathos in the last act and you kind of have to get there mm-hmm. for it to hit, but it didn't hit me nearly as strongly as the intensity of Othello or the anguish of Hamlet. And it's a tough hang. You know, it's like, it's not entertaining in the way some of these other plays are entertaining either. Mm. So all that being said, I'm like, I'm looking at my list here and, you know, Will, I'm, I'm going to put it at number 11. Whoa. It is. So for me, it is between Much Ado About Nothing and A Midsummer Night's Dream. And, you know, look, not, I don't want to say there's not great stuff in this play. There's, there's great stuff in this play. And the pathos of it is real at the end. But, you know, if I look at my list here, Much Do About Nothing is maybe the most perfect plot in the play. Merchant of Venice, I, I mean, to me, the, the Shylock character, there's just so much interesting stuff to think about and talk about going on in that play. And there's so many great speeches. Romeo and Juliet, Richard III, Julius Caesar. I mean, all my top plays here, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't enjoy this play enough and I didn't get enough significance out of it to put it in the top 10 so wow james you're saying that love's labor's lost is better than king lear that's what i'm saying well wow. i'm saying that wow wow what about you where do you rank it well i i put it significantly higher than the number 11 i can tell you that much i am going to say that it comes in at i'm going to say number th- number four for me Interesting. So that above would, that Othello. Would be above Othello, but below Julius Caesar. I feel like Othello is powerful, but it also is a play that has a long windup. Mm-hmm. I think King Lear, the ending, is shot through with pathos and is quite dramatic. I debate a little bit about some of the how I feel about some of the plot machinations because it can be a little mechanical and you're told a lot of things without necessarily always showing you the action. But I was undeniably carried along by the language and the interplay of both the politics and the familial dimension. In some ways, I actually think a lot of the themes from the first tetralogy, the Henry VI plays and Richard III, is all packed into this one play. And I found that to be, um, to be really great. Do I think that it has the rich naturalistic characterizations of Henry IV Part One? No, not really. Do I think it's as entertaining as Richard III? No, not especially. Do I think it, it has some of the, the sublime characterization and speeches of Merchant of Venice? It's close in that sense. I think that they're, they compare favorably. But 
I do think that as an achievement, I'm more struck by it than those plays. I think it hangs together pretty well. Julius Caesar just sticks with me for a variety of reasons, you know, in commentary of politics. Henry V, I think, is a rip-roaring play that also integrates a lot of the, the most interesting themes. And Hamlet, I think, retains the top slot for all the obvious reasons we've talked about. But I can see why people like King Lear and hold it in high esteem. Uh, mm-hmm. So for me, I think I'm going to put it at number four. And uh, Will, who would you anoint the MVP of this play? Kent. I love Kent. He's the ideal of the good staffer uh, who Mm -hmm. tells the boss truth to power. And he gets himself into some very funny and entertaining, uh, entertaining situations. He's got mad squabbles. He can fall asleep while being tortured in the stocks. And he's loyal unto death. It's a great character. I love Kent. What about you? I think there are a couple options in this play. Kent is definitely one of them. I think Lear himself is one of them. I think both of Edmund and Edgar are options. And I think even Albany, you know, could be a sneaky contender for for MVP. None of the sisters, actually, I think, are just large enough in the play. Mm. For all that Cordelia is this super famous character, she's actually in the play surprisingly little, and I think that makes it would make it difficult for me to go in that direction. I think, ultimately, I have to go with Lear himself. Because, I mean, one, the play's named after him, so that helps. Uh... <laughs> but no, mo- jokes aside, I, I think the uh, his arc is the most fleshed out and developed, and I think Edmund would probably be my number two or the you know the second option for me. But Edmund feels to me like a slightly less effective and robust Iago, which isn't to say that. You know, which, which honestly is more, I think, a reflection that of like the sublimity of Iago as a character more than it is a knock on, on Edmund. But I think Lear really anchors the play, and I think he has some really poignant and difficult moments. So that's mm-hmm. why I go with Lear. Fair enough. He is a great character. So, James, now that we've wrapped up the power rankings, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our listeners? Well, I, I for sure do. I have been watching a lot of classic films recently. And one that I, it is astonished to me that I had never watched this movie before, but I just did. And that is the movie The Wild Bunch, directed by Sam Peckinpah, starring William Holden. Great, great movie. It's essentially a revisionist Western or a, you know, it's a a Western with a twist. It's very subversive of what we think of as the Western genre. And it's old, drunk William Holden riding around with a bunch of, miscreant, ill-begotten, bad-intentioned cowboys, you know, trying to make a buck, trying to make one last buck before they retire. And it's a long film, it's a complicated film, and it is incredibly entertaining in addition to being really interesting. So I would say, like, it kind of hits both on the entertainment side and on the thematic richness side. And I, I would I would recommend it to anyone. Really, I would recommend it to anyone who who likes movies, or even if you don't like movies. But in particular, if you if you enjoy westerns and you haven't seen it, I, I think it's a must see. Great shootouts, great shootouts in that movie. So James, give us that recommendation one more time. That is the Wild Bunch, directed by Sam Peckinpah. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we're heading back to ancient Greece to meet Timon of Athens.
If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.